Dodd and Frank are catching up in the back. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. I'm Trey Grace, and I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum here at the Harvard Kennedy School. We're really glad to have you here uh, for this uh, conversation on the politics of Dodd-Frank with Dodd-Frank. Um, tonight's event wouldn't be possible without the gentleman I'm going to introduce, uh, Jim Siegel, who's a fellow at the Center for Business and Government here at the Kennedy School, uh, was a senior aide to Congressman Frank uh, during the negotiations and the legislative process ultimately leading to the passage of Dodd-Frank. He's been here at the Kennedy School for the semester uh, researching uh, TARP, but he's also been leading a series of discussions on the politics behind Dodd-Frank. And we thought that was such a great idea. We thought a lot more people would be interested in a conversation, and so we thought it would be a good idea for a forum. So we're glad to have all of you here, and please join me in welcoming Jim to the stage for an introduction of our moderator. Jim. Thank you, Trey. Uh, thank you, Trey, and thank you to everybody here for coming, and particularly thanking the three guests behind me. Uh, as Trey said, I'm writing a paper on top, which is not a good word for someone with a Boston accent, but it is um, about the bailout that happened in 2008 that probably is the most unpopular bill ever in Congress. And the fact that it got through has intrigued me. And I, that's what I'm writing a paper about, that the two gentlemen behind me were there, I think, was essential, that they were chairman of bank and Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee was integral to the passage of TARP that most economists think uh, saved the United States economy from a major depression. We had a serious, and we're still in, or coming out of a serious recession, but uh, most of the economists think that it would have gone, the economy would have uh, really gone down if uh, we had not passed that bill. And the fact that Barney and Chris were there and had the leadership skills, had the intellectual gravitas, uh, had the desire to act in the nation's best interest, regardless of party. And you may remember that the president was Republican, the secretary of treasury was Republican, and yet worked very closely with both the House uh, and the Senate, uh, was essential to the passage of TARP and ultimately uh, to Dodd-Frank, which was the financial reform bill that, that followed two years later. Uh, Dodd-Frank is probably the last major bill that has passed Congress, and I don't know how much longer it will be before another major bill of that stature uh, is, is able to pass it. Uh, I've known Barney uh, for a number of years. He was here at the beginning of the Institute of Politics. Uh, in fact, he uh, was here in 1966, and he was a uh, graduate student in government at that time. Uh, so he is, has a very close relationship here. Uh, Chris was Senator Ted Kennedy's best friend in the Senate, so both of them are particularly close uh, to the uh, Kennedy School and the Kennedy Forum, I think, and it's appropriate that, that they're both here. Um, Chris was always very accessible and uh, appreciated by his colleagues. Uh, Barney was also accessible, but when people approached Barney because he had his arm in a sling in 2009, he then wrote a dear colleague letter to all the colleagues saying, I have my arm in a sling, please don't ask me about it. Thank you very much. So sometimes, sometimes accessible uh, for certainly substantive reasons, he was always there, uh, but he wanted to minimize sometimes the extraneous talk. Um, tonight we have Lois Romano, who is a uh, political reporter uh, for Politico, 
a former reporter for both Newsweek and the Washington Post as an experienced Washington hand, and we're very happy to have her leading the discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, um, and thank you all for coming. We are um, extremely happy to have these guys here today because, as Jim said, um, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act was probably the last major bill um, to pass Congress in the last five years. And these guys come from an era um, where they were really, truly legislators, and they wanted to get things done, and they were pragmatic, and they believed in compromise. So with that, my first question is, could you have passed this bill today? No. Uh, and you couldn't have, uh, and Brian, I've talked about you couldn't have passed it either in, uh, today, but you couldn't have passed it in the few years before it either. It was that one window that emerged as a result of the crisis. And also, uh, in the wake of the TARP legislation, clearly the, the idea that we might just pass that and then go back in the status quo as if the world still existed in the fall of 2008 would have been unacceptable. But the window that existed was the one window we went through. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. Um, for instance, the Independent Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, I'll, I'll give a plug to a friend, Elizabeth Warren's, Warren am I speaking in echoes? Um, Elizabeth Warren's book just came out about the establishment of the Bureau, and she said the day the House committee passed it, and it then went through and Chris protected it and improved on it in the Senate, she said, they told me not even to try this because the banks always win, but they didn't win today. And they would have won three years earlier, they would have won today, but then, so part of it was that factor. The other was um, the, the fact of the Tea Party. You know, we, uh, and I want to stress what Chris said. All during 2008, George Bush came to Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and said the economy's in trouble. The first time he went to them was to ask them for an economic stimulus, which then later became a bad word when Obama asked for it. And they gave him a stimulus that was largely tax cuts, although progressively structured, because he said the economy needed it. And then six weeks before the presidential election, Bush sent his top economic people to us and says, as Jim said, we got to do something very unpopular but necessary. And the Democrats said, yeah, let's do it. And I do not, it is not conceivable to me that President Obama would get that same kind of cooperation. So when people talk about, you know, whatever happened to bipartisanship, I mean, I think the answer is that Obama won and he got that response. But in 2008, all during 2008, there was the most complete uh, bipartisan cooperation and Someone asked me if the House Republicans, for example, would have given Obama the same cooperation. They didn't even give Bush the same cooperation. The Democrats voted for that bill in the majority. The Republicans voted against it. My former colleague Gwen Moore is there who remembers it well and voted for it. Um, so it is both the fact that you had this unusual ability to mobilize public opinion and the advent of a hyper-partisanship on the part of, of uh, the Tea Party. So here we are five years later and you look at it, you're watching it, is it working? I believe it is, and it, it isn't, I mean, it's taken a while and some of the major provisions to get the, uh, the regulations implemented, and some are still not done. But to the extent that you watch institutions, financial institutions, not even waiting for the implementation to already adopt and, uh, and implement some of the very reforms included, is probably the best evidence that it's working, and also that it, that it makes sense. Uh, the fact that the institutions who complain the most about it to some extent have accepted what we, bought, what we recommended in the legislation, and as I say, are adopting these ideas <coughs> and, uh, and concepts without waiting for the full implementation uh, to occur, 
And that's probably the best evidence. And, and again, how they're reacting, and again, the economy, how the institutions themselves are doing. Some of the provisions, obviously, uh, we hope never have to be implemented. Uh, you hope you never have to deal with it too big to fail. We end up unwinding institutions uh, and going through all of the problems associated with that. Uh, so, uh, or looking at, at systemic risk where institutions have to be dealt with because they are posing such systemic risk. So, some of those provisions will only tell whether or not they really work when they're actually, uh, when they're being invoked for a reason. But other than that, it seems to be doing the job that we intended it to do and the institutions seem to be reacting. Yeah, I would just, there are two tests, um, two ways it could have failed. One, uh, there were some of our friends on the left who said that it was way too weak and didn't have any teeth, although many of those on the left who said that it didn't have any teeth, without passing go, immediately shifted to, oh, this bill is now being weakened by the regulators. Well, if it was too weak in the first place, it wouldn't have been anything for them to weaken. Uh, in fact, I think it has had some real bite. And if you read, for instance, the financial pages of the New York Times on a daily basis, they will say, because of increased regulation, this or that or the other, it's gotten woven into the interpretation. And on the other hand, the standpoint of the financial community that was predicting disaster, um, that functioning quite well. The, their ability to do the function that they're supposed to do has not been hindered. Did you anticipate that the implementation would be this slow? <coughs> I mean, 50, only 51% has been of the... Well, most of it's been implemented. I mean, I, I don't... I would check those numbers, and I don't know who, who gave them. I mean, the, these things become... The, the, <laughs> what happens is the major pieces have been, have been put in, into place. Um, secondly, though, and this is... Uh, there is one thing, two, two things that hindered it. There's no question. In the first place, we did not anticipate the Republicans take over the House of Representatives. And unlike the health care bill, which they have tried repeatedly to, to repeal, they never offered a bill to repeal financial reform because they knew that it was popular. But they went at it in, a, in, a, in an unfortunately insidious way. The House Republicans have been able to hold the budget allocation for two of the key regulators way down. One of the biggest things we did was to create a regulatory capacity over financial derivatives, which had previously been left alone. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities Exchange Commission, particularly the former, have been substantially underfunded. The other problem we had, and this one's been resolved, people, you know, sometimes the dots have to be connected. There was a conservative imbalance on the court that interprets uh, the law, the one in the District of Columbia, where appeals go from regulations. And that's one of the themes behind that fight between President Obama and getting his judges confirmed and the, the filibuster, there will now be a, a more balanced circuit court of appeals in the District of Columbia. Uh, so given those things, I think they've done a very good job in, 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 in spite of it. We did something too that if you go back historically and look at the banking legislation in the wake of the, the Great Depression, those bills were literally 25, 30, 30 pages long. That was about it. And it left entirely up to the regulatory community to decide what the parameters would be. What Barney and I did here was, was, was get far more specific, uh, and the Congress did, obviously, by voting for the legislation on major areas, what to be done, but left the final regulatory process, as you have to, to people who spend every day working at this or knowledgeable and thoughtful about how to do it. So the Volcker Rule, for instance, which was a controversial provision, uh, is not, it doesn't take a long time to describe what you're trying to do, although a very complicated point, I might add, and not one that's a simple black and white issue, in my view, anyway. But it's taken a tremendous amount of effort on the part of serious people looking at that, how to implement that in a way. And, and that would have been impossible to leave 
with all due respect to our colleagues, who are knowledgeable about a lot of things, but financial reform is not one of them, uh, historically. And, and so you, the idea you would write that into the legislation would be impossible. And so you needed to leave a lot of that work to the regulatory uh, community to do. Yeah, Chris made one very important point. I just want to underline the concept of your question. Even though there were things that have not yet been implemented, that has not been a problem because no financial institution, not surprisingly, has tried to take advantage of the, of the, of the interim period. That is, no financial institution said, oh, you know what, they haven't adopted that rule yet, and well, this may someday be uh, illegal. Let's rush up and do it now. Nobody's gonna gear up to do that. So, so there has been a deterrent effect even from the rules that haven't been implemented. You suggested in a, recently that maybe the regulators were overreaching a little bit and not comporting with congressional intent. Can you talk that no, out? No, only one case. That, you, you, uh, yeah, I uh, had one, in fact, there has been a proposal to cover asset managers who are not actively engaged in a lot of financial uh, financially volatile things as systemically important financial institutions or SIFIs. Sounds like a disease, but um, there was a proposal that they should be covered as and regulated the same way that Goldman Sachs or Bank of America. I did not see a case for that, frankly. Some of them are very important here in Massachusetts, Fidelity and others. I did not think that Fidelity posed the same kind of risks in its business model that AIG had done or that uh, uh, other, uh, you know, that Citicorp had done. So somebody recommended that the body in charge of that cover that. The body had not done that. So the all you have is a recommendation from one agency. I said I disagree with that recommendation. The people at the Wall Street Journal who are uh, foaming at the mouth to try and uh, convict us of something then ran an editorial headline that I was disagreeing. I thought the regulators were overreaching. No, they hadn't overreached, they hadn't underreached. This was a proposal, and I was recommending that they not accept that proposal. Um, so uh, that, that was the one situation where I did not think that uh, there should be, from, from my standpoint, an expansion. That is, I did not anticipate when we were working on the law that these people would be covered. Also, large life insurance companies. But I will give you one, I'm sorry, a little long, but I'll have to say this. One of the arguments we got from our friends on the left was, and it had to do with the too big to fail that Chris talked about, was that by designating these institutions as systemically important, we were doing them a favor. Rather than subjecting them to, to restriction, as we thought they were, potential restriction, we were doing them a big favor. We were announcing to the world that they were immunized. Well, then this proposal came to cover some that were not automatically covered. And every single one of them said, stay away from me. Every single one of them acted like the vampires were coming. So we have proof from the institutions themselves that no, being designated and regulated as an important institution is not fun for them. It is, it is something they want to avoid. Senator, if you could go back five years and with a, with a perspective of hindsight and, mm -hmm. and tweak it a little bit and do a few more things, what would you tackle? Well, uh, I suppose a couple of things. One is I, I mentioned some of these. I think we. That housing finance, I mean, I, I, I think Fannie and Freddie did a far better job than they get credit for. There's obviously problems that Bernie and I, Barney and I had to deal with, uh, but I'm concerned that, that we're not replacing Fannie and Freddie with a, with a, yet with a housing financing system. I mean, this was a house, began in a housing crisis, a mortgage crisis, in a sense. And I happen to subscribe to the notion that, that uh, 
Housing is not only a great wealth creator, but a great stabilizer for families, communities, and neighborhoods. And while we made it too accessible for people without, uh, and banks not doing their, the due diligence uh, to determine whether or not people could afford the fully indexed price of, a, of an adjustable rate mortgage, uh, was, which was a huge mistake in my view, and obviously the, the rating agencies that never really did any work at all whatsoever, banks were selling these mortgages or bundling them from eight to 10 weeks. Brokers were unregulated. I mean, just the chain of events was outrageous, but that's one thing that needs to be done. I mentioned before bankruptcy laws need to be accommodated. The too big to fail provisions, which uh, that was an amendment offered by Richard Shelby and I as the very first amendment on the floor of the Senate passed with 92 votes, I think. People complain about it today, but that was a strong provision in here to provide for a, an orderly mechanism to unwind institutions and eliminate for all today the idea that you either have an implicit or explicit guarantee that the federal government will bail you out uh, since you take on too much risk and get yourself into trouble. Uh, but bankruptcy laws need to be accommodated to a larger situations than, than we, we, we envision with that provision of the law that hasn't been done yet. So that's a second area that, that uh, needs some attention and needs some work as well. So those are two major areas that uh, I would certainly like to see some more work on. I would um, add, and this is something Chris and I both agree with, but just we ran up against the cultural divide in America. There is no reason in the world why there should be two separate agencies regulating financial derivatives, the Securities Exchange Commission and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And the reason that we have two is that there used to be a financial regulator, the Securities Exchange Commission, and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which was in charge of pork bellies and other I mean, it was commodities. And then the financial community invented financial derivatives. And we have this overlap. Yeah. And it would be perfectly sensible to merge the two. But if you did, you would have shades of rebellion. You would have all the agriculture people saying, oh, you're going to put me under those city slickers in New York. And it was just, you know, we, we understand it, but it's just not physically possible. The only thing I would say, and Chris is absolutely right about housing finance, they demonized it too much, and, they, and, and that's interfering the kind of the hangover from the demonization. But I do want to give the history here again, because I know, um, for instance, Dick Cheney in his memoir blames Chris and me for the fact that Fannie and Freddie hadn't been regulated. In fact, he says that in 2003, his administration proposed regulating Fannie and Freddie, but House Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank killed it. Well, as you know, 2003 was a bad year for Dick Cheney, he was seeing things like Iraqi weapons of mass destruction in 2003. <laughs> um, he apparently had the foresight to see that I was going to be chairman of the Financial Service Committee four years after the period in question, because I wasn't chairman when it was written. The Republicans chaired the House and the Senate. They killed the bill in 2003. In 2005, they killed it again uh, with the Republican chairman of the House Committee, Mike Oxley, explaining that it was killed because George Bush gave him the one-finger salute. And in fact, in 2007, when Chris and I became chairman for the first time, and you can read this in Hank Paulson's memoir, that's when Fannie and Freddie got fixed. The Republicans left it alone for 12 years, and there was this great retroactive uh, rewriting of history. Let me mention, you know, come on, pick up on something Barney just said. I offered a, what I called a draft proposal in November of 2009 on financial reform, and, and it, I, I think I got two colleagues that said they'd vote for it, but I think people, in retrospect, might like to revive the idea. I virtually eliminated the alphabet soup of regulators. I created one prudential regulator. Uh, I incorporated uh, consumer protection within the prudential regulator, so you'd have some relationship between prudential regulation and consumer regulation uh, in the proposal. 
And, uh, and needs to say that the idea was junk. We actually eliminated one of uh, federal agents, but we added two. So we had a net gain of one, unfortunately, in many ways, because I think that is a legitimate issue about having a lot of overlapping jurisdictions, which makes it hard as well to reform this area. It isn't just the banks and other institutions who are hesitant about reform, but obviously the regulators themselves don't want to give up the turf as well. And so you have a major problem on trying to get consolidation in these, in these areas. And secondly, and again, this is a more delicate area, because I, I, I believe in the independence of the Federal Reserve System. But clearly, after 100 years, since uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, creates the Federal Reserve System, someone needs to start to look at this in terms of whether or not we have the architecture in place today to deal intelligently with the Federal Reserve System. The supervisory function of the Federal Reserve System, I could yet to find anyone who would indicate a time when the supervisory function was used in any conversation about monetary uh, policy. And so clearly stepping back and having a thoughtful look at it, not the sort of idea where you eliminate the independence of the Federal Reserve, which I think would be a huge mistake, but those other issues clearly need some attention. You have two regional banks in Missouri and one in San Francisco, because in 1914 there was nothing between St. Louis and San Francisco. Well, today there is you know, a lot going on, but nonetheless, that architecture is still in place. You know what you say, and the reason in part was you run into political problems consolidating. For example, the major defender of the supervisory powers of the Federal Reserve, this may be counterintuitive to you, are the smaller banks of America, mm -hmm. the state chartered banks, because the, they did not want to have the same prudential regulator as the big banks. Right now the big banks are in the control of the currency and they said we want, we, we want to keep a separate one because we, are, we don't want to be in, in bed with the big banks. And the problems we ran into was this, there were sort of two, two cross cuts of issues. One are the structural reform issues where you run into the regulator's resistance and those entities in the economy that identify a particular regulator, and then you have the substantive ones. And I think what we, what we had to do was put aside the structural to do the substantive kinds of reforms. But I think Chris is right. The time now is with the, structure, with the substantive reforms in place to now do the structural stuff. And let me just say, and Lois is a backdrop on this, and, I, and, and obviously we're here at Harvard, but as I had to get 60 votes in the Senate. If, I, if it was 59, all of this goes away, it dies immediately. So I was right on that cusp all the time to get that supermajority in the Senate to pass this. Had I not had this gentleman next to me leading the effort in the House, we never would have succeeded. It, it, it takes a special person who understands the Senate. You don't have to like the Senate if you're exactly. in the House. <laughs> Most of them don't, but you have to understand yeah, it. Two company, nepa, two uh, uh, partner. <laughs> well, let's go back and talk a little bit about the politics. And that's a very important point in all of this. And Barney did a remarkable job when he went to conference, which is the critical component when you try and meld these bills together. In a way, and Barney chaired the conference between the House and the Senate. Uh, then to work out the differences, if I had to come back with a product that would still get 60 votes. Uh, and even though Republicans made significant contributions to this bill. One of the things I did in the markup of the bill is one evening in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee room, I asked all the members to come and their staff, senior staffs, without telling them why. And at that meeting, I announced pairings. I announced a Democrat and a Republican that would work on subject matters. I asked Jack Reed of Rhode Island to work with Judd Gregg of New Hampshire on the derivative section. I asked Chuck Schumer to work with Mike Crapo on pork corporate governance. I asked Mark Warner and Bob Corker uh, to deal with too big to fail. I didn't tell any of them I was going to announce this ahead of time. But by asking a Democrat and Republican to work on this, they came up with wonderful ideas dealing with these very complicated subject matters. And that made a significant, significant difference. Mm -hmm. 
but having holding that line, those 60 votes, uh, are absolutely critical. Otherwise, this is just an academic conversation. For eight sections. Yeah. And by the way, Chris then convenes a meeting of his committee to have votes and amendments on the bill. And there's already, and there were how many amendments prepared? Hundreds of amendments? 401. And only to learn that the Republican leadership had decreed that the Republican members of the committee were not to participate in any such process. It's at that point, so if you want to talk about partisanship, it's at that point that they decided they would stonewall. Not and, a single one. It was the shortest markup in the history of the banking committee. It lasted 19 minutes. So despite the fact that on a Friday, 401 amendments were offered, on Tuesday, when we sat down to mark up the bill, I received a call that Sunday. I was happened to be in New York, and Dick Shelby, who I have a great deal of personal fondness for, called me and said they would be offering no amendments uh, at the markup of the banking bill. And so no alternative ideas, no amendments to any of this were offered in that critical committee markup of the Senate Banking Committee. Um, where did Paul Volcker come from? I mean, he had not been in the process, and then all of a sudden he parachuted Mount in. Mount Olympus. Well, <laughs> everybody's always been very curious about this. The House passes the bill, and then all of a sudden, uh, Volcker's coming from somewhere, maybe the White House. Right. Tell us about Volker that. Volcker had been talking about that. We had in the House proposed some things that were steps towards the Volcker rule, and specifically, we included an amendment that uh, Congressman Kanjorski, who was the number two Democrat, had pushed hard over the objection of many to um, allow the regulators to dismantle a large institution sort of function by function. In other words, it gave them the right as a discretionary basis to impose something like the Volcker rule and other things. Um, and even that was considered controversial. Here's the political situation. In 2009, the focus in this country was on the health bill. Chris said that we couldn't have passed it uh, you know, in, in other period, and he's right. I don't think we could have passed the kind of bill we passed, frankly, if, if the health bill had still been pending. But there was all that attention on the health care bill. And then the health care bill is, is no longer the number one item. And the president also, at this point, begins to feel that he needs to show some more energy behind the financial reform bill. So the White House, Paul Volcker lobbies the White House over the objection of some of the people in the administration on, on yeah. this. Um, and uh, you know, if you read, I just read Tim Geithner's book in advance to, uh, to Burbitt, and uh, enthusiasm for the Volcker rule does not leap off those pages. Um, but the White House decided they needed to kind of you know, gin this up, and, and, and uh, Paul Volcker had been appointed to be the head of some uh, advisory regulatory group and had felt somewhat uh, ignored. Was he, were they trying to shore up the base? I mean, was it the... Well, in fact, I'll tell you... I guess Scott I, Brown had just won Massachusetts. And yes, that was a factor. Part of it as well. And, and, he, and I think he cared deeply about it, the whole idea of gambling with other people's money. Uh, the basic notion of proprietary trading, I think, has, is sound. The point I made earlier is that there are legitimate reasons where proprietary uh, trading or the Volcker Rule applies. Interest rates is obviously one, but others may be hedging against uh, problems that are going to occur. But I've been asked a... a, a probably 100 times since then, how did I come up with, or how did we come up with uh, the 3% number, which is in the bill? <coughs> and I say to people, look at <coughs> this three, is very- 3% is the amount of the bank's assets yeah, that, it's a, that are an exception to the bulk of That's right, yeah. Well, I, I tell people, I convened the most brilliant economist that the world has ever known for a long weekend. We sat down and discussed this at great length. 
and some wanted 0% and some wanted 10%. I could get 60 votes for three. I'd love to tell you it was more complicated than that. Uh, and, and, I, and I know that's offensive to people, but since we're at the School of Politics here, you've got to appreciate in the end, remember, I had to get 60 votes. And so the number yeah, could I have mean, been four, could have been two, could have been six. I will add to the, to the process, Jim Siegel, who's here, was my special counsel. Um, Scott Brown comes, and Scott was a, a critical vote. I mean, yeah. you, you, you had the three Republicans who were going to vote for the bill. Senators Collins, Snow, and Brown, and they were basically going to rise and fall together. They were not; they weren't going to have just one of them do it or two of them. All three would do it. So uh, Brown had some concerns because some Ameri some some Greater Boston financial institutions had concerns with the Volcker rule, and uh, there were critical negotiations going on. And Jim was negotiating with Brown's staff on this, and uh, we were also negotiating with Paul Volcker. And uh, yeah, essentially 3% is, uh, was, was the result of that, uh, of that sort of dual negotiating process. Now the Volcker rule is still a couple of years away from being implemented. Are we ever going to see it or? Certainly will. It took a while for they them obviously to do it. As I said, it's a. They have just adopted it. They adopted it, but it, it, it's, got a, it's got a phased in mm -hmm. or delayed right. date on it before it goes into place because it does going to take some adjustments to make it work. One other thing about the Volcker rule, it's, it's a proxy for, um, making the big banks smaller. I mean, I think that's really the, people still say, well, the banks are too big. Well, frankly, yeah, the big banks are too big. They got too big in part because the government made them bigger. Uh, Bank of America was asked by the government to take over Merrill Lynch. J.P. Morgan Chase was asked by the government to take over Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns yeah. uh, Wells Fargo was encouraged to take over Wachovia. So, um, there was this duality there because the big banks were, 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 were being used for this purpose. Um, there are some people who would like to break up the banks. I have asked them to what size. I mean, there's a disruptive element, and how do you do it? The Volcker Rule was a, is a way to make the big banks smaller by reducing one of their functions without getting into these other things. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the political appeal uh, from the Volcker Rule came from. Um, all right, a question about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, why doesn't it have congressional oversight? How, why is it at the Fed? It does. Well, it Let does. me say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not funded by Congress. That's, uh, that's, Neither is. That's one of the things I should have asked my list, by the way, when you said we would change anything else. And, and because exactly what Barney talked about earlier, this is the way you, this is the way they, instead of opposing something, you starve it. The Federal Trade Commission has become nothing more than a building, pretty much, because it's been stripped of its funding over the years. And that's how this is done. And that's been a problem with the SEC as well. So I was determined to separate out uh, from that kind of the vagaries of, of congressional uh, uh, starvation of, of, of agencies charged with responsibilities. Now, I've been asked, why didn't I do it with the SEC? Well, I'd love to, I wanted to do it, I'll tell you frankly. But again, I'm on, the, I'm on the cutting edge. I lose one vote and the bill dies. And I had a number of people who serve on the Appropriations Committee of the Congress. And they don't like giving up jurisdiction of much, including their ability to decide the funding of the Securities Exchange, including Democrats. <laughs> uh, and so I couldn't run the risk of having, which you could easily do with the SEC, and we should do, in my view, instead of having it be subjected to the vagaries of Congress's appetite over these matters. But we couldn't do it. And consumer protection would be dead today, in my view. Me, it wouldn't me, have a nickel in funding had I left it up to this Congress to decide to fund it. And let, let, let's respond to this. I had the same issue. Um, some of the appropriations, including Nancy Pelosi, who'd been on the Appropriations Committee, was originally skeptical when we talked about giving the Securities and Exchange Commission autonomy. 
Technically, we couldn't initiate that for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, by the way, because jurisdiction over that is in the Agriculture Committee. Hmm. So we, we focused on the Security and Exchange right. Commission. Um, and at first, I ran into some resistance. Speaker Pelosi was persuaded that we should do it, but we ran into uh, the Senate appropriators. But as to uh, this not being oversight, um, it is true that there was no appropriation required for Consumer Bureau. Instead, it gets its money through the Federal Reserve. Well, why don't the appropriations people cut off the Federal Reserve? The answer is the Federal Reserve is not subject to the appropriation process. Neither is the control of the currency. Neither is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This argument that you can't have a regulatory agency in financial areas not subject to appropriation is simple hypocrisy. Uh, in fact, when, on one of the occasions when the Republicans in our committee offered an amendment to require, when they came back into the majority, that the Consumer Bureau be subject to congressional appropriations, I offered an amendment that that also applied to the Federal Reserve System. And they voted it down. The Federal Reserve had a fit. Oh, decent, don't do that. They'll crazy, they'll take it. But um, They might not vote it down today, though. Yeah, don't do it again. Right. No, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> but that, so that's the answer. <laughs> Secondly, the argument that there was no congressional oversight, uh, you want to hear the argument that there was no congressional oversight of the Consumer Bureau, you can go to one of the approximately 30 hearings they have had since we passed it, uh, oversight hearings on the, on, the, on the Bureau. Of course it has oversight. So I mean, just the way the Federal Reserve does. Yeah, right. And, uh, the, but the, the answer is we are following the model of the other financial regulatory agencies. All right. I think we're going to see if there's some questions out here. Um, do we, we have, what, four microphones? One, two, other four? Um, so I, I would just ask you to, uh, to get to the point in your questions and make sure there's a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> um, and we'll start over here with you. Uh, hi, my name is uh, David Clifton. I'm a freshman at the college. So during the recession, uh, the malpractices of bankers essentially like wreaked havoc on the economy. Uh, yet after the recession, bonuses went up. 95% of, of income gained since the recession has gone to the top 1%. Um, and politics is largely controlled by the wealthy. So if a recession won't do it, what will it take to get Americans concerned enough about growing plutocracy and growing, growing control of banks to put a stop to it? Well, let me, first of all, something that's important that I think that Barnett and I both feel strongly about. Because um, I'm constantly asked by people, we were asked constantly during the process here, why are you doing this to us? We didn't do anything wrong in this, in this period you've talked about. Uh, candidly, but our job was not here. This, this was an opportunity to reform the fundamental architecture of the financial services structure, to also try to harmonize rulemaking globally, because uh, obviously that's a major shortcoming as well, uh, and deal with issues that hadn't been dealt with for a long time, although people thought they should have been. We were not in the business of being punitive as, as far as what we were drafting. That was not, I never thought that was our responsibility. There is a responsibility. I would, I would certainly, I think you've suggested, I would agree with you, but not in this bill, uh, in a sense. And so uh, uh, while there may have been temptations of people have asked me over and over again why we didn't go after those who were culpable for some of the egregious, 26 million people lost their jobs in this country. $13 trillion worth of the national wealth evaporated in the country. Four and a half to five million homes went into foreclosure. Investment banks, commercial banks, credit unions, insurance companies were destroyed. Uh, iconic historic institutions no longer exist today. People have forgotten a lot of this. Only four years ago, but people have forgotten how devastating this period was and what damage it did, 
not only domestically but internationally as well. But our job, what we were trying to do, was not to become the cop in a sense, to go after those who were culpable for doing this, but rather to try and create that architecture and structure for the future. The part we didn't have the jurisdiction. I, I am critical of the administration. Not enough people were criminally prosecuted. And I thought the argument would be, well, you don't want to prosecute the institution. Fine, I mean, look, Justice Roberts may believe and have may bestowed on corporations humanity, I'm skeptical, but well, they're people, they ain't the only people. There's gotta be other real people who did things. No corporation ever did something in the absence of a flesh and blood person. So I am very disappointed they didn't do criminal prosecutions, but I reject, I reject part of your argument that we didn't do anything about it. No, they are much more severely restricted. And uh, you know, I, they, they complain and there are, there are uh, you read the New York Times financial pages on a regular basis about uh, the, the restrictions and profits in this area. Uh, they've gotten out of this line of business because it's not as profitable, because it's more regulated. We did put an end to the bad uh, mortgage loan. So I do believe we, we, we did a, a good deal of that. There was this one problem, is that the financial sector is important in the economy. You don't want to just grind them down so that they halt. But I think we did put restrictions on. But I share your frustration. Um, the income inequality, that's, uh, the financial stuff is a very small part of that. There are much broader reasons for the continuing income inequality. Um, I don't know why we can't get people to agree to vote uh, to demand that their members of Congress raise the uh, income tax on the people in hedge funds who are, I think, inappropriately getting the tax break of capital gains on their earned income. But people vote for these people. I mean, I got, many of us have been pushing for this. I would like there to be higher taxes. We did, finally, in the, in the last, in 2000 and, and uh, uh, 12 in the end, we did raise taxes back up on the wealthy, but I, there were a whole lot of things I would like. But the American people, in their wisdom, vote for a majority in Congress who don't agree with that. So I don't know what, you know, what's it gonna take for people to stop voting for wackos? I don't know, I wish I did. <laughs> There's a couple of things. There's a couple of things, though, quickly, that, that, that go to Barney's point that are important. One is, for instance, uh, say on pay, which was not a very popular provision within, within corporate governance issues. So they're actually shareholders every three years have a say on, on corporate compensation, which is important. Whistleblowing provisions here, which no longer mean you have to go through the corporate entity first, you can go directly to the SEC. And people are nervous about what the implications of that would be. It's worked remarkably well about whistleblowers coming forward uh, with information, uh, exposing uh, people uh, who have done things wrong. And if you look at the funeral plans on unwinding institutions and what happens to individuals who put themselves in that situation, it, it, it's, while it's not criminality, it, it, they think it is because it's so, it's so tough in terms of what leaders are faced with doing and what they can never again participate in. So aside from not doing anything specific about what occurred out there, there's structures in this bill which really do deal in the future with those kind of problems. Chris made a very good point, and which will reinforce mine as well. We did say on pay, that is, over the objection of the corporate community, we said, and not just for the financial industry, the shareholders have the right to veto compensation for the top people and it has been overwhelmingly unused. Uh, <laughs> they picked on Vikram Pandit at City Corp and he lost his job. I mean, what more can we do? We can give, we, apparently the shareholders, the institutional entities, the pension funds, they decided not to use it. I, you, you can't make them do it. Good question. Thank you. <laughs> Up there. Hi, uh, I'm Max, also a freshman here at Harvard. Um, I wanna ask you a question about the mortgage issue that you were talking about earlier. I think one of the reasons that mortgages led 
or that failed mortgages led to such a systemic problem in the financial system is that banks gave out mortgages, they securitized those mortgages, and then they often sold those securities, but the problem is they didn't actually keep any of the risk themselves. Right. Right. And so there was you know, a lot less of an incentive for them to actually check the mortgages. So according to Alan Blinder, who's an economist at Princeton, basically what your bill did is it tried to deal with this problem by requiring banks to keep 5% of the um, of, of of their of, the risk. of their mortgages, right. the risk. you know, of the risk themselves. But according to him, 75 to 95 percent of mortgages are going to be exempt from that provision. So it ends up being weaker. So my question is, a, how do you respond to that? And b, what do you think we need to do to make sure that we can have securitization, which can potentially be a very good thing, without leading to too much risk that can be a bad thing? I, I completely Great agree. Question. The Let's single see. biggest problem was this: 30 years ago, you wanted to borrow money for a house. You borrowed it from a bank, and you had to pay that bank back. And because they needed you to pay it back, they frisked you pretty good before they lent you the money. And then, because there was a lot of liquidity in the system and information technology, which was the enabler of this, it became possible for lenders to lend you money and immediately sell that loan. So the incentive, the financial incentive passed from quality to quantity. You made money on every loan, and it was irrelevant to you. So yes, we put into the bill uh, a requirement that, ev that, that there be at least a, that there be at least a five percent uh, retention of risk. By the way, the way we finally worked it out, it wasn't on the lender. There was complaints from the small banks. It's on the securitizer, but it has the same effect. That is, if I am going to buy up a bunch of loans and package them and sell them, I have to keep five percent of the risk. So that has the same effect. As Chris said, the previous way that people thought this was going to be done was by the credit rating agency, right. who <laughs> made stuff up, and that was all. But what um, what happened was, it's this, every, one of the th great advantages of being in the Senate apparently is, and I did understand it, and, and I had to accommodate it, but I don't love it. Every so often, you get to be the 60th senator. It's like being queen for a day in the old television. <laughs> and you're the 60th senator, and you announced that if this doesn't happen, you're gonna kill the bill. And I was confronted, and I've been a big supporter of risk retention, but I was confronted by a United States senator who was going to vote for the bill and ultimately did. And what I was told was, we need to have a category of mortgages that are so safe that they're not subject to risk retention. And we had no option but to give it. Unfortunately, and this is a fight now, some of my liberal friends, and I'm critical of them, have joined in lobbying the regulators. So but blind thing is not, it, it hasn't yet been decided. This is now up to the group of regulators who set this. They did a good job, and they have banned the bad mortgages. The Consumer Bureau did that. So now the question is, will there be two other categories or one? I want there to be two. Most mortgages subject to risk retention, a few that are especially good and are exempted. But there's been a movement to have them be just one, and, 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 and basically to exempt all the mortgages from risk retention. What you can do about it, lobby people. That is now a major issue before the regulators handle you. What's the status of it? It, it's been, you know, frankly, I, I joined in, there was a proposal that will abolish that. I, I joined with Sheila Baer, who was the Bush appointee that had the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, a very good regulator. She was going to be fired because the guys didn't like her, and Chris and I intervened and saved her job in, uh, during the transition uh, between the two. I said that, I told the Secretary of Treasury, he looked like, he looked like a bunch of 10-year-olds in a treehouse with a no girls allowed sign. But um, the, um, that's a very live issue right now. 
And if you ask me what I would have changed, I would not have given in, but we had to do it. So that's very much a live issue right now, uh, how much of an exemption there will be. Yeah. And I, you know, the, and there were the, the FHA and others had proven over the years, and in VA in some cases, that, that people who couldn't make down payments were where due diligence was done to determine whether or not they had the incomes and the capability of meeting their obligations, even under adjustable rate mortgages, that no down payment was required. And they proved to be very good loans no, and reliable uh, uh, consumers and, and paying their obligations. So it's offensive to some degree. If you do the work, the problem is no one was doing any work. An unregulated broker was being paid immediately. The banks were holding the mortgages for eight to 10 weeks, as I mentioned, and then selling them off. No due diligence being done by the credit rating agencies, just depending on the information that would be given by the financial institutions. So the entire system was designed, and I agree with you, by the way, securitization has created far greater liquidity, which has made it more housing available to people, and really works in many ways. But, but I, have a, I had a problem with the notion that, that poor people are bad risk inherently, uh, and we've proven over and over again that they can be very good risks and so forth. If the work is being done, and they're put in a situation where they can afford it. The problem was these brokers, in many cases, knew damn well that the people they were marketing these products to had no capability of meeting their financial obligations and could have cared less about it. And, see, now, and I would add, first of all, I, I'm a little more skeptical of some about home ownership. My, my major goal has been to build very good rental housing for, for low-income people. But leaving that aside, the other problem with some is they are equating the requirement that the lender or the securitizer retain some of the risk with a, a prohibition on the loan. And they say, oh, if you can't, if the lender can't ultimately sell the loans, they won't make any loans. Well, apparently there were no mortgage loans made in America before 1980. Because before 1980, nobody was selling the loans. They were keeping them in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that's my objection, is that if you really think it's a good loan, you know, this is not a 5% penalty on every loan you make. It's a 5% share in the losses. And if you make good loans and they don't have losses, you've got no problem. Thank you. Okay, over here. Hi. Hi. I'm Andrew Snyder, and I'm MPP1 at the Kennedy School here. Um, my question's specifically for Senator Dodd, I guess. Um, you're now a lobbyist, so what um, role do you think lobbyists played in the crowd? <laughs> Sitting next to a lobbyist. Well, I, I, it, it, some of you know, I'm now I'm the head of the Motion Picture Association. People have asked me, what are the comparisons between the Senate and the motion picture business? I said, I left one group of bad actors for another group of bad actors. It's been kind of a, been a, sort of a lateral move here along the way. And, uh, and as such, listen, it's a, a great American industry. They asked me to take the job, and I've enjoyed it. It's different in many ways, but um, seven to one exports and imports. Revenues have been up. 70% of the revenues come offshore. And uh, so I'm enjoying the work. It's different, but my time, after 36 years in Congress, I had enough. It's time to move on. I enjoyed the work immensely, and this is interesting work. And what role do you think the financial sector lobbyists played in the uh, crafting of Dodd-Frank? What role did the? What kind of influence did uh, lobbyists? How deeply? Well, yeah, look, I, you know, let me. I, I, you know, first of all, let me, this notion of the pejorative uh, on lobbying. I mean, the First Amendment talk about petitioning uh, government, and so the notion that everybody who petitions government. My experience was in 36 years that that good lobbyists played a very valuable role in the process. It, 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 people who came to my office and and did they didn't tell the truth or provided false information never saw the inside of the office again. But people who gave reliable information on behalf of a constituent or a, an interest they had uh, weren't necessarily negative uh, at all, in my view. They provided information that could be extremely valuable in making decisions. 
then my job was, and my staff's job, was to make a good decision as to whether or not that information and the other information deserve either a positive or negative reaction to it. But the idea that the person coming with the information is inherently guilty of something, uh, I think is fundamentally wrong, in my view. And I think we make a mistake, in a sense, by suggesting that everybody who lobbies on behalf of an institution, public or private, is somehow corrupt. I think it's a bad idea, in many ways. That idea of petitioning your government and asking some people to do it is not inherently wrong, in my view. Let me, uh, again, I'll requote Elizabeth Warren. They told me not even to try to create a consumer protection bureau because the banks always win, but they didn't win today. Yes, well, no, they're very important. By the way, they were lobbyists against each other. The small banks were lobbying against the big banks. Uh, you had the, some of my friends in the housing community lobbying one way or the other. I believe in this situation, on most of the big issues, public opinion beat campaign contributions. That isn't always the case. And it particularly became the case, and I noticed a particular change in April of 2010, when the health care bill became law, and the press, the media, public attention shifted from the health care bill to the financial reform bill. And so in this one case, and what Chris said before, we couldn't have passed that before. And I would say, I mean, I infer that you have a sense that the lobbyists have a great deal of influence. Find me an issue where you think that was the case. I think it'll be hard. I did, yeah, one of the mortgage brokers who went to that senator who got that concession that I didn't like. But I don't think you will find many cases where, uh, where the lobbyists, uh, particularly for the larger financial institutions, got what they wanted. They, how did we get the Volcker rule through? How did we get an independent consumer protection bureau? How did you get some of these tough derivative things? It was over their objections. Thank you. Um, over here. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's great to have you. Um, my name is Hannah. I am a first year student at the business school just across the river. Um, and as a business student, I looked kind of in depth at some of the parts of the law, especially around hedging. I think of hedging as a great risk mitigation tool. And just looking at the detail of, of the law, something that I was really curious about is how you drew the line between which parts you're going to be very explicit about in terms of regulating and which parts you're gonna to leave to the CFTC and other regulatory bodies. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you help by giving us an example? Yeah, I'll, of I'll give you my approach. There were some things that have proven to be damaging and, and reckless, and we were specific about them. Beyond that, we try to give general principles. With regard to hedging, for example, and this is true of much of it, I think our governing principle was, we are not telling the private sector what risks to take. We are going to insist that there be mechanisms whereby the risks and the responsibilities are hooked up. I think a lot of the financial engineering, like securitization during the period before we did the bill, decoupled risk-taking from responsibility for the risk. So you can still hedge, but you have to have more capital. You have to go, in some cases, on, on a, uh, an exchange. Um, but as I said, I think the general principle is you would, you would stop bad things. Now, the Volcker Rule was something of an exception to that, where it said, Okay, you, you can't do it, you can do it. But in general, as I said, like with mortgages, we ban the really bad kind of mortgages, and then we try to put rules in for the others, and that, that's the general principle. We, don't, we didn't restrict very much uh, in the absolute. Let me I just say this, I don't think with regard, except for those really, again, very bad mortgages, I don't think there's any significant financial activity that was being engaged in before the bill that isn't still legal after, but it has to be done, I believe, more openly and with, with uh, more backup. 
We mentioned, I mentioned earlier to you the, the, uh, the Volcker rule, obviously there are certainly the, that number, put aside the number of 3% or whatever, but clearly there are examples and certainly instances when hedging uh, and proprietary trading makes sense uh, to people, an example of it. We also put matters in dealing with the, the uh, uh, risk taking by, by executives, corporate executives. They were being rewarded for, for bad risks in many ways and trying to manage that to some degree was in, important as well. So there are a number of instances in the bill where you try to encourage uh, behavior. And as Barney has pointed out, based on the size of institutions, capital requirements, and Basel has followed up with this and so forth. And again, if you want to be that kind, that institution of that size, that magnitude, then you have to be willing to accept the responsibilities as well of what can happen if it fails. And lastly, I just say this to you, because in addition to that, one of the things Barney and I try to do with this is you can't sit around on a banking bill every five years. And new products and new institutions are emerging all the time, and they should. New ideas emerging, and you want to encourage that. But you want to be able to have an architecture in place that can accommodate when these things occur. So things like the, the Financial Oversight Board, for instance, the, the, the real-time data collection at Treasury with an independent head of all of that, is designed to be able to look over that horizon and watch events both domestically and globally. What's emerging here? Are there issues emerging? either in product lines or institutions, which pose systemic risk to our financial institutions and the economy of the country. And in this way, you don't have to rewrite laws all the time. We've, we've invested great authority in these institutions to be able to respond, to these, including breaking up banks. I mean, people said, why didn't you do it? We actually provide that power in the legislation uh, for that to occur here. And so that is designed as well, so you don't have to come back every few years and then deal with a new product line, a new institution that emerges because we didn't think about it when we wrote this particular bill. And lastly, I'd say this to you. There's nothing biblical about this legislation. This is not Talmudic uh, here. Uh, Barney, I'll both tell you, we're going to discover in time whether or not we didn't do enough in certain areas. We may have done too much in certain areas. And that good congressional oversight in the months and years ahead have done well. Both of us are fully prepared to acknowledge that there are things we could have done better in all of this. You do the best you can in the time frame we were given under the circumstances in which we are operating. And there will be changes to this in time, I'm certain of that. And I have no problem with that. I mean, I, but I want to get specific, Ken, and I agree with all that. An example in hedging. Um, here's what we said with regard to hedging. Yes, you may hedge, but a hedge is a financial position you take to offset another very specific financial position. It is not a bet about the economy in general. Hedging is not a form of speculation, and that's that became very relevant in the case of J.P. Morgan Chase and the London Whale. Their defense was, well, we were hedging. Well, what were you hedging? Well, we were hedging against the economy in general. And so in that sense, we said hedging is very important. And hedging has as its purpose protecting you against volatility so you can go and make your Coca-Cola with the syrup and you can sell your thing. And that's, so hedging to protect a specific position against volatility, yes. Hedging in general for speculation, no. And in terms of that, let me give you an example. We sit in the speaker's private room and Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke come to us in September of 2008 and say, Bernanke has decided to use his authority to give $85 billion to AIG to pay its debts which you can't pay. Authority we have since severely, uh, they can't do that anymore. A week later, they're talking about the TARP and they say, Oh, you need so much for this and so much for that, and, another, and 80 for, for AIG. We say, well, you just told us already last week about AIG. No, that's another 85 billion for AIG. AIG, this great financial institution, in their credit default swaps, which are a way of people to hedge, not only didn't have the money to pay what they owed, 
they had no idea how much they owed. And so that's why I said hedging for a specific, you can hedge freely for a specific position as long as you've got the capital to back it up and the fees are, are made public and maybe you can even do that in exchange. But hedging, uh, calling a speculative position about the economy's direction in general, hedging is not, a, is not allowed. All right, let's see if we can do um, two more quick questions. Can we do that? Yeah. Is that okay? You can do quick questions, quick answers. The quick answers. Uh. <laughs> quick answers and quick questions. Quick questions and We're right here, young shorter man. answers. Uh, hi, my name is Eric Hollenberg. I'm a student at the college. And um, I was just wondering, um, when you look at countries that uh, majorly avoided the financial crisis, like Canada didn't spend a dollar bailing out their banking sector, um, Australia didn't have as, t as tough a time. I'm wondering well, if they had specific capital to asset ratios along with insurance rates on uh, risky securities. I'm wondering what sort of things can be learned from those countries and what you tried to implement. Um, I'll defer to Chris, but I just want to say, you just, you said countries like, no such thing, Australia and Canada, there's no countries like. Everybody else was the same. They were very much the exception, not, 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 not any kind of And they were very conservative. Yeah, the TD Bank was very conservative in its, in its practices uh, here. You know, ironically, too, Canada has larger banks than we do. I mean, you know, this people talk about the size of institutions, mm -hmm. in a way. And, and it was, again, it was prudential lending practices that they uh, acknowledged, and so it, it's a good example of what happened. Unfortunately, in major other parts of the world, that wasn't the case. And I mentioned, Barney and I felt strongly, in April of 2008, the G20 made some 20 recommendations on financial reform before we started to do the bill. If I had announced that I was going to track the G20 recommendations, you can imagine the reaction I would have had on that. But frankly, we did. And a lot of what's in this bill tracks those recommendations made by the G20, not to create duplication in rulemaking, but harmonization of rulemaking. And to some extent, we're getting that, not as much as I'd like. Uh, because we are in a global economy, obviously. We created a lot of this. I wanted to see the United States would lead. If we didn't, if we hadn't done what we did with this bill, I guarantee you the Europeans or others would have. And we'd be playing by their rules today, in a sense. So it was important from a parochial standpoint that the United States lead in this area as well. And I think we've done that to a large extent. Let me say, first of all, the Canadian example is exactly right. And we met a lot. I met, right, he just died, Jim Flaherty, who was the Canadian minister in charge. And we did a lot of conversation with international people. Um, but the Americans who complain that we have too many big banks, Canada had five big banks. Canada had the greatest bank concentration of any country, still does. So the notion, Paul Krugman makes this point, the notion that bank concentration in and of itself is destabilizing, Canada goes against. I would say the other thing is Canada and Australia were both exceptions. And frankly, they are small, stabler countries. And they stayed out of the frenzy. And we were aware of this, and what we did was to stop people from doing some of these things. But you know, basically, the, the Canadians and Australians were much more, they exercised voluntarily a caution and a responsibility that I believe we have imposed now on, uh, on our institutions. All right, last question. I'm Alex from the Kennedy School. Um, and I'm, so Dodd-Frank uh, enables the CFPB to regulate abusive practices in addition to traditional regulation of unfair and deceptive practices. And I'm wondering um, what sorts of practices you, you hope that the regulators will reach with that authority. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad. I'm, it's a useful thing because the Republicans complained about that. We said, we said unfair and deceptive, and we added abusive. And they, they said, well, we, you just made up abusive. But I'll tell you where I found a great definition of abusive practices. I don't have the page 
reference now. It's about 130. It's in Friedrich Hayek's uh, book, The Road to Serfdom. And he talked here, and, I, and, and we try to spell this out definitionally. It, uh, I read it. And I love that. That's great. <laughs> uh, it says, abusive is somewhat more individual specific. That is, something that would be abusive to you, would not be abusive to you, might be abusive to an 89-year-old with, with an elementary school education. And so that's what abusive is. It's not inherently unfair, but in the given circumstances, it puts, it, it, it deals with people in ways that, that take advantage of them. And that's sort of spelled out. And again, I, 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 if you go read Hayek, Hayek's a kind of a small book, and he, he, you know, he's much less of, a, of, a, of an anti-regulator than the right wing that's never read it thinks. Um, and um, he does say abusive, he, he describes, he doesn't use exactly the phrase, practices where you unfairly take advantage of someone's weaknesses, where there is a disparity in information. So they're not always, in, they're not deceptive, and they're not inherently unfair, but in the given circumstances with the great disparity in knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, that, that those are the things you can stop. All right, well, I think we'll let that be the last word. Uh, Congressman Senator, thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you all for joining us. Mighty Counselor.